Good morning. Good morning to those here and to those joining us online. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to North Suburban Church once again. Um, I'm asking for your grace right at the outset this morning uh, because uh, I spent all of last night actually in the hospital with our son. It's, he's going to be okay. Uh, he's actually still in the hospital. Sarah tagged out with me this morning, but um, just having a hard time breathing, our youngest, and uh, getting, he's working too hard to breathe. So they're confident they're going to be able to get it figured out. Um, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at in my head still. And what you're about to find out is that the evening before and morning of I, a sermon that I preach is the time when I take, uh, I say, hey, I'm about to preach this sermon. I got to cut and I take 15, 20 minutes off of the sermon there in the last moments when I'm like, I have to cut some of this. I got to part with it. And so I didn't have time to do that part of the sermon prep this week. So we'll see how this goes. I'll be trying to cut on the fly, but thanks in advance for your grace on whatever happens in this sermon that I haven't looked at in a few days. Uh, let me pray for us as we jump in. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Um, and I actually don't have the clicker, so if you might advance the slides, that would be great. Um, a week or two ago, the internet turned on the Swedish. Don't know if you noticed that. Uh, caught that. Swedengate was the hashtag. It apparently started with a Reddit thread asking, what's the weirdest thing you had to do at someone's house because of their culture or religion. And in response, one user posted this story. I'm just removing the expletives. He said, I remember going to my Swedish friend's house. While we were playing in his room, his mom yelled that dinner was ready. And check this, he told me to wait in his room while they ate. That was wild. A chorus of others then jumped in in the replies about being told to play with toys in another room or to take microwave leftovers upstairs while a Swedish family ate an exclusive family meal downstairs at their dinner table. Uh, the memes were incredible. I think I might have put one in before. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. the person on their way to their Swedish friend's house just packing with food. Thank you. Um, but not everyone was so lighthearted about it. Uh, outraged Twitter predictably responded with various versions of, hey, you think it's bad the Swedish don't feed their guests? This is actually a symptom of a much deeper, more systemic problem with the Swedes, and let me tell you about it. Uh, tough week for the Swedes, right? So, so the Independent ended up running this article, uh, an opinion piece in response, and the title just made me laugh. I just, I didn't even read the article. It was just so funny. I'm Swedish. It's true that we don't serve food to guests. What's the problem? Fascinating, really, and I, and I was more fascinated by it than I even normally would have been because of the combination of Sweden and hospitality was so spot on. A, I had been planning to preach on hospitality today to kick off our summer emphasis. And B, our church and denomination, as many of you know, come from Swedish and Norwegian roots only a few generations back. Uh, quick background there for those who may not know. North Sub is part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America, which was created from a merger between the Swedish and Norwegian free churches back in 1950. Uh, this particular church was founded in 1959, and here are the names of some of the founding members. Anderson, Carlson, 
Gulbranson, Casperson, Johnson. When you look at the list, it's a lot of SENs and SONs in those days, right? So while only a minority of our church is Swedish or Norwegian ethnically today, I think it's unwise to imagine that roots don't matter or to ignore the founding DNA of a church and how it continues sometimes to shape things that are done decades in the future. And that's for better or for worse, right? Our Swedish and Norwegian roots have uh, blessed us, benefited us as a church in many, many ways. But every culture has strengths and weaknesses, right? And so for many, most 60-year-old churches, what they emphasized 60 years ago continues to be what they emphasized. What they were weak in 60 years ago continues to be weak. So listen, I have no idea, actually, if traditional Swedish hospitality practices have at all influenced our church's practices regarding hospitality. The Swedish folks I know in our church are actually very hospitable, right? But whatever the history, the question is, how about today? How strong are we in hospitality as a church? So that's where we're going today. Before we get too far into all that, we're going to need to lay some groundwork. Our normal practice here at North Sub, as many of you know, is to preach through books of the Bible. So we'll be starting the book of Judges next week and preaching it straight through by the end of the summer. But every so often, it's worthwhile to just do a broad survey of one biblical topic. And today we're doing that with the topic of hospitality. Hospitality is our summer emphasis. It's the one thing that we're asking everybody in the church to consider this summer. So here's how we're going to approach it today. We'll look first at the biblical command to hospitality. We will ask what hospitality is, why it's important, and what hinders us. And then we'll wrap up with a summary of it all. So the command, what it is, why it's important, and what hinders us from being hospitable. First, the command. The command. Uh, Last week, we installed three new elders. Maybe as you were preparing to cast your votes a few weeks back for these guys, you reread the biblical requirements for elders. If so, you saw that the Bible says nothing, actually, about the professional or educational credentials of church elders, but it is required that they are hospitable. So, 1 Timothy 3, this was a casualty of my preparation that I'm going to be flipping around instead of, they will not be up on the screen today. First Timothy 3, an overseer therefore must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. And again, in Titus chapter 1, and as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he would be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Note, it's not enough that their wives be hospitable or that they meet people at coffee shops. If a person himself is not hospitable, he's unqualified for church leadership, according to the New Testament. But catch this, hospitality is a requirement for eldership because every church member is actually supposed to be hospitable. And it would be unhealthy to have elders who are disregarding God's prescriptions for Christian living that everyone's called to. So 1 Peter 4.9. Uh, it's a simple one. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Then back to Romans chapter 12, verse 
13, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. The youth group looked at that verse just a week or two ago. Those are just some places where the word hospitality is used. Apart from Jesus' reliance on others' hospitality and his call for followers to welcome the stranger, feed the hungry, etc. In short, there's no room for any of us, elder or not, to say, hey, hospitality just isn't my gift. So I'm going to leave that to the, the Nilsons and the Salmons and the Crones and those folks who are really good at that sort of thing. While it's true that some people are particularly gifted in hospitality, and while it's true that elders in particular must be hospitable so that the rest of the church can see up close and personal what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ, hospitality isn't just required of church leaders or of those who are gifted in it. It's required of all of us who have been shown the greatest hospitality by our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so having established that this command is for everyone, Let's make sure we're clear on what exactly is being commanded. What is hospitality? People have different perceptions of it. Martha Stewart is a common association, right? Uh, you know, decked out to the nines, uh, impressive tableware. And maybe you know intellectually that hospitality can't require all that. But then what is it exactly? Maybe you've heard somebody explain that it's the Greek word philoxenia which comes from philos, which is love or friend, and xenia, which is stranger or foreign, so friend to the stranger or love of the foreign. We always want to be careful when someone explains a biblical word by its parts as though that's necessarily what it means. Butterfly isn't butterflying, right? Uh, that's not always how language works. But in the case of hospitality, philoxenia, there is a helpful reminder in the word itself that hospitality isn't just a bunch of us friends getting together and hanging out. It isn't just having your family or best friends over for dinner. There's an other, a stranger, a, a foreigner component to true hospitality. So, so, so a few clarifications about what biblical hospitality is and isn't. Okay. Love to have these up on the screen, but we don't. So first, it'll often involve food, but doesn't necessarily have to. Second, I'll send these out tomorrow. So you don't, don't have to try to furiously write them down. It will be costly in terms of time, energy, and resources, but is ideally not an extravagant performance. Third, it will respect people's time while being willing to linger long. Fourth, it will take place where you have home field advantage, so to speak. Meaning that meeting in a coffee shop is good, but it's not hospitality. Fifth, it can be a solo effort, but is best done as a team. And sixth, it will necessarily look different during different seasons of life. I love this summary from Christine Pohl in her book, Making Room. Uh, I'm going to read this out. She says, when we offer hospitality to strangers, we welcome them into a place to which we are somehow connected. A space that has meaning and value to us. This is often our home but includes church, community, nation, and various other institutions. In hospitality, the stranger is welcomed into a safe, personal, and comfortable place, a place of respect and acceptance and friendship. 
even if only briefly, the stranger is included in a life-giving and life-sustaining network of relations. Such welcome involves attentive listening and mutual sharing of the lives and life stories. It requires an openness of heart, a willingness to make one's life visible to others, and a generosity of time and resources. Again, I'll send that out tomorrow, but now here's the problem. For 300 plus years now, our world has been working really hard to outsource hospitality such that most of us don't have to be bothered with it if we don't want to. We now have hospitals, hospice, hostels or hotels so that you and I don't have to be bothered with hospitality unless we seek it out. For that reason, we might have a hard time even imagining what this might look like in practice this week for us. So let's take a few minutes and just lay out a, a, a range of examples to possibly expand our vision of how we might obey the biblical command to hospitality. So I'm just going to give a few, just that could, could work in our area this summer. So first, uh, inviting people into my home for a meal or dessert or drinks or a play date. Right? That's the first one. So, so maybe your home is like ours. We can't fit many inside. We've gotten great use of our deck and backyard from May to October, right? Maybe that's a win for you too. Second, inviting people to stay at my home and use my spare bed or beds. Kids go off to college, so you take in a college student to stay with you. You take in your elderly parents instead of sending them to a facility. You become a safe family to give a kid a place to stay who needs a temporary placement in a time of crisis, or you foster one or more children or adopt them. In all these examples, you're providing a loving and safe environment for someone who needs a bed, a bed which you can offer, hospitality. Third, if we expand beyond the home to think of our neighborhoods as places where we're comfortable and feel at home, this is one that my wife Sarah does particularly well. She's constantly scanning for who's moving into the neighborhood. Right? When the moving truck shows up or when people are just visiting the neighborhood even to look at houses that are for sale, we'll walk across the street and say hi. Because while this is our neighborhood, while we are starting to feel comfortable there now, it's a new place for them. They're out of their element. And so we want to be connectors in the neighborhood. We want to be the ones in the neighborhood who help the new family meet people and learn how things work on our street. It's hospitality. Right? You might think of your pickleball league or your spin class the same way. If you're a student, you might make it a mission this August to figure out who all the new kids are in your grade who moved from other places and make sure you help them feel at home. One more. Uh, this one's not as much physically inviting in as it is relationally inviting in. So just like we welcome people into our homes and into our schools and our neighborhoods, what if we welcome them into ourselves? Like, what if we let them in on who we really are? That's a form of hospitality, too. And it's one that each of us could begin practicing tomorrow. Your neighbor or coworker will probably ask you tomorrow, hey, how was your weekend? Normal question to ask, even if you don't really care about the answer, you ask it just to be polite. If they don't ask you, go ahead and ask them, and then they have to ask back. Uh, when they ask how your weekend was tomorrow, one thing you could say is just to peel back the onion one more layer than what you have in the past and say, hey, yeah, well, I went to church this Sunday. Mention that as one of the things you did in your weekend. See what happens, if anything. Maybe nothing right? But eventually maybe you peel back the layer one, one more and talk about something God taught you this weekend or something you learned, something that he's working on in your heart. More about that later. So, so, so we're called to hospitality 
And we've talked about what hospitality is. It's welcoming strangers in as neighbors and even as family. So now, why does God call us to hospitality? Why is it important to practice this sort of hospitality? Well, first off, we, we've already at least briefly mentioned the present crisis of disconnection. Right? Out here in the suburbs, we keep space between our houses. And now we've increased that relational distance by working from home, exercising at home, shopping online. And God forbid we do have to go to the grocery store in person, we use the self-checkout, right, to stay away from people. The explosion of mental health crises over the past two years has reminded us, though, that humans were never meant to live this dis disconnected and isolated from each other. Experiencing hospitality then can restore some pieces of our humanity that have been robbed, and that's a 2022 reason why hospitality is important. But in all cultures, in all places, and at all times, the hospitality of God's people is meant to be a fountain of blessing, both to his people and to those who are not yet his people. Here's what I mean. First, uh, let's talk about first uh, hospitality to fellow believers. You could argue biblically that fellow believers should be our first priority, hospitality-wise. Galatians 6.10, for example. When believers are hospitable to fellow believers, God ministers his grace to those recipients of the hospitality in a special way. For example, maybe at a given moment, my home is feeling chaotic. But when you welcomed me into your calm space, God used it to settle me and comfort me. Or just the reverse, right? Maybe I found that your space is actually pretty chaotic too. And when I got to see your chaos, I realized, oh, I'm not a failure just because things aren't perfect in my home. Right? It's such a blessing for Sarah and I to be fed and ministered to by the Park family a few weeks ago. Guess who's coming to dinner? I know many of you had similar experiences at the homes you visited that weekend. It's life-giving for all of us to be welcomed in by fellow believers. And while it is important for all of us to have that experience, I, I couldn't help but thinking this week about how it's especially important for single folks in our midst, and uh, including for same-sex attracted folks. Here's what I mean. Here's what happens often in churches. Right? Church says, hey, uh, want to make sure single folks, same-sex attracted folks that you read what the Bible teaches, right? That if you're going to get married, it should only be one man, one woman, and it should only be another believer. Don't even date outside of that. It would be better to stay single forever than to transgress God's boundaries in that way. Then simultaneously, when it comes time for holidays, those single folks, those same-sex attracted folks, don't get a call, don't get a text message inviting them over. No place, no obvious place to go. Uh... Sunday, lunch after church, no obvious family to go home to and eat lunch with. And so, listen, though, Jesus said there was going to be a cost, didn't he? And so that's part of it. We saw in Mark's gospel last fall, there's a cost to following him. But then remember what he said right after that in Mark chapter 10. He said, truly, I tell you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now, at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. Do you catch that? 
Y'all, the church that Jesus envisions is a church that provides a hundred homes to the single woman who says, makes the costly decision to saying no to marrying the nice non-Christian man with whom she could have a nice home. The church Jesus envisions is a church that provides a hundred family members to the single man who's deciding that he's going to stay single instead of pursuing his same-sex desires. Or who just broke up with his unbelieving girlfriend in faith. That's the way the church is meant to function. Now, can every home in the church be exactly that kind of a home in every season of life? No. There's the little kid stage and the dying parent stage and the family crisis stage. It's not realistic at all times for all families and all individuals to have that kind of a hospitable home. But if this isn't my season, my particular season, to have the open chair and the open bed in my home, how can I support another family in the church who is offering that open chair and open bed? That's the question I can ask. Can I bring food? Can I come early and help get ready? Can I stay late and help clean up? That's now partnering in hospitality, right? Even if the hospitality doesn't happen to be taking place in my home at this time. So those are just a few of the ways that God intends to work through the hospitality that we extend toward other believers. But what about to unbelievers? How might God intend to use our hospitable acts toward those outside the church? For one thing, it's, it's different to hear about a way of life than it is to experience it in person, to see it up close and personal, right? Like when I, when I first heard about the phenomenon of Disney adults, I said, wait, there are grown-ups with no kids who do what? Actually, that's not a good example, though, because now having seen Disney adults up close and personal, I'm still as baffled as ever. But... Many of our neighbors, they won't really grasp what we're about until they see it in practice. Writings have been preserved from the Roman Empire in which people are talking about the early church, saying things like, I hear those Christians marry their siblings. I hear those Christians, they're cannibals who drink blood. But then many of them encountered Christians and were surprised by how compelling their way of life was, how the Christians were putting the Roman government to shame by their hospitality for those on the margins whom the empire was quick to discard. It's often the same today. Many of you know the story of Rosaria Butterfield. We've mentioned her before. She was a lesbian activist and college professor who was invited regularly into the home of a Christian pastor in her town, and what she saw there in that home, over the table, uh, over meals, and with an open Bible, exploded her categories of what a Christian was. It was so compelling that she gave her life to Christ in that context as she joined countless people from backgrounds like hers who realized that their deepest longings are only ever actually going to be fulfilled in Jesus. What we quickly forget is that something, God could be wanting to pull off something just like Rosaria's story in your home this summer. We forget that as we have people over, they experience a strange world in our homes, in our spaces, right? They're maybe seeing different books on our shelves than the ones they have in their homes. They're maybe seeing us and our kids interacting with technology differently than they do, speaking to each other differently than they do. They're maybe seeing us navigate marital misunderstanding or conflict differently than they do. In other words, it's likely that our neighbors will often leave our homes saying, that was different. 
because they saw something that they couldn't have seen when we were merely just walking the dog by their house or stopping for a chat at the water cooler. Hospitality made it different, made it real, put flesh on it. I think that was always part of the plan. Jesus could have told the world about himself by projecting a video message into space for all the world to see. Instead, he chose to strategically place believing individuals and families as outposts among those who don't yet know him. So that those neighbors could see firsthand, oh, oh, that's what the way of Jesus looks like. Now, I should stop to acknowledge that some here today and some watching online maybe uh, don't presently identify as believers in Jesus. That's not, just, that's not where you're at right now. And listen, first of all, thank you for giving some of your time to step into our mess with us this morning and enter into this conversation. But I wonder if at this point anyone is feeling like, hey, this seems kind of slimy to me as somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Am I a project that you're working on by inviting me over to your house? It's an important question. And, and some of us here in this room were once in your shoes, namely not yet believers, but being pursued by one or more Christians who were trying to get us to believe what they believed. And here's a perspective that helped us understand why these believers in our lives were pushing us to believe in Jesus. The person, the person who finds the cure to cancer, yet watches his loved ones die of cancer, instead of sharing the cure, we have, we have strong words to describe such a person. And that's the thing, we Christians deeply believe that the whole world has fallen ill with a cancer called sin. And we deeply believe we've been shown the cure in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's say that we're wrong about that, though. Let's say we Christians are wrong about it. We're deeply convinced, but still wrong. Isn't it still more loving to share it with you? So at least you have a chance to say, no thanks, I don't think that is the cure to what ails me. We just feel like we'd be massive jerks, honestly, if we didn't try to share it with you, right? So, so maybe you think we've lost our minds with this Jesus rising from the dead stuff, and we get that. We're going to love on you no matter whether you conclude that we're right or conclude that we're wrong. We're just a bunch of poor beggars, as we say often, trying to show other poor beggars where we found bread. And, and the case I'm making today is that hospitality allows us to communicate that message in a far more robust way than we can when limited to one-off conversations here and there in passing. When you can see me in action, when you can hear me in extended dialogue, when you can taste and smell and touch what it's like for my home to live under the reign of King Jesus, yeah, you might still choose to reject the bread that I think I've found, but you're going to at least have a fuller picture of what it is that you're rejecting. So, concretely speaking, here's what we're calling our church to this summer. Ready? And this is going to require a little imagination. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go with this because... Somehow people preached before PowerPoint, and I don't have a slide for this, but we're going to communicate it anyway, okay? So picture there's a graph. I'm asking you to locate yourself on this graph right now. There's an x-axis and a y-axis, right? And this is kind of the, this is the framing of our summer, what we're calling each other to this summer. Our y-axis runs from bubbled down here to connected up here. Bubbled to connected. This reflects the quantity of relational interaction you have with unchurched people. So like down here, on the lower parts of the graph, 
uh, is the person whose kids go to Christian school and whose friends are all Christian, who work out at a Christian gym and who eat at, I guess, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Nothing inherently wrong with any of those choices, just to be clear. We're just looking at the cumulative effect on all the choices and the bubbling of our lives, right? So, so that's bubbled down there. Up here on the top parts of the graph, left and right, is the person who has ongoing conversation all day at work with unbelievers, who goes to public school or whose kids go to public school or participates in the city's public activities and events and leagues, who hangs out with unbelieving neighbors regularly as text threads with unchurched people. Okay? So y-axis, connected, bubbled. Where are you on that one? Think about that. If you've got a piece of paper, jot it down somewhere. The x-axis runs from, okay, I'm going to do it your way. So closed to open, closed to open, right? This reflects how forthright you are about your faith with the unchurched people who are in your life. So whether you'll talk to one unbelieving friend or a hundred this week, over here to your left is that the unbelievers in my life have no idea I'm a Christian because that's not something I ever talked about. You're closed. Over here to the right is I regularly and transparently include my faith and the implications of my faith as a topic of conversation. You're very open about your faith. So where are you here on this x-axis? Do you put yourself in a quadrant? Can you picture yourself what quadrant you're in based on that graph? The goal this summer for our church is very simply this. Can we all take one step up or to the right? That's it. Can we all just take one step up or to the right? No shame if you don't become Billy Graham overnight. Just one step up or one step to the right by the end of the summer. Simple as that. Easier said than done. But that's the idea to talk about on the drive home today. Right? Okay, friends, family, how are we going to take one step up or one step to the right as a family? Right? And hospitality is actually near the heart of both the rightward and upward moves. At least it can be, right? How can we invite the unchurched people that we already know deeper into our lives? So those people up at the top, how can we push to the right? That's a sort of hospitality that cultivates openness now. Or, man, I'm already open, but how can we expand that circle of who gets invited deeply into our lives? How can we expand that to more people, be open with more of them? That's a hospitality now that cultivates connectedness. Up or to the right, that's the goal. Finally, what hinders us? I told you this is going to be long, sorry. We're coming to the end. What hinders us from being hospitable? If that's the call, what's going to stop us from getting there? <clears throat> At this point, the enemy may be working in your mind and heart to tell you all the reasons why this doesn't apply to you, or it's not realistic for you, etc., and I think, I mean, I'm, if I, I believed this the other day, but I believe it now more than ever after I spent Wednesday night throwing up and after I spent last night in the hospital with my son. This idea is a threat to his hold on our neighbors and friends, right? If North Sub would do this, I, I, I have come to deeply believe that the enemy does not want you to hear this message today, right? Let me just say, before getting in these hindrances, that there are legitimate challenges special circumstances and life seasons. If you're really struggling with how to figure out hospitality given challenges in your life right now, please do reach out. Love to talk with, through it with you, do some brainstorming together. That said, 
when Jesus calls us to something, like he clearly has in hospitality, there's an important sense in which the answer to how is yes. So let me just address what I think is at the heart of a few reasons we might put up resistance to being hospitable. Okay, I've got five of them, sorry. One, pride. Pride is a hindrance. Here's a form pride often takes. My house isn't big enough. My interior isn't up to date. It feels humble, but it's prideful. Because it's self-focused, right? Essentially, you'd be embarrassed to invite people into your life because you aren't as wealthy as your neighbors. And because of that pride, you're willing to ignore the Bible's clear command in order to avoid embarrassment. That's self-focused. It's pride. But what if the call to hospitality was never about us looking good? What if it was never about how we look at all? Let's love people enough to get over our pride and bless them however simply. As I just read that first point, I'm just going to stop for a second and say this. This is one of those things that if I was going back over this, I would soften this so much. But you're getting the raw right now in these five. So forgive me. This is, as I read that, I was like, wow, that was sharp edge. Okay, that's what we've got. Fear. I'll try to soften this one. Okay, fear. Second, second hindrance, fear. Here's a form fear often takes. <clears throat> right now, I'm flying below the radar as a Christian. People are okay with me because they don't know what I believe. But if I start letting people in, I'm going to be ostracized in my workplace, excluded from neighborhood happenings. In this case, it's a, it's a willingness to ignore the Bible's clear command because I'm ashamed of the gospel. Remember the words of Jesus, though. Anyone who's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of the Father with the holy angels, Mark 8.38. Third hindrance, cost. So pride, fear, cost. Sometimes monetary costs. Living hospitably does require us to reallocate money that we would have spent on ourselves to bless others instead. But here's another cost. It's so relaxing just to be with our family, our nuclear extended family at the holidays. We know each other. We know how it works. If we were to invite somebody in from outside our family who needs a place at our table, it would cost us this special family thing that we have going, that we've been doing for years. That's a cost. And first off, we should say it's wise to count that cost, right? Don't skip over those conversations. Weigh, weigh the costs. Do it. Look squarely at what you're getting into. <laughs> that said, Sarah and I have been having conversations thinking about it. Just like, Let's think about it from the other side, right? If Jesus wants the stranger without a family to be welcomed into Christian homes and families, and if the close-knit healthy, stable Christian family isn't going to invite that stranger in to share what they have because they love their close-knit, nice Christian family thing, then who is going to welcome in that stranger? There is a cost. Sadly, when Christians aren't willing to pay the cost of hospitality, it's the stranger who ends up having to pay it. Fourth, so pride, fear, cost, laziness. Laziness. Here's one form laziness takes. I'm introverted, so I can't do much of this. Now, I can say this because I'm introverted, uh, and I'm, I sometimes get on my soapbox on this one a little bit because some of you know I'm actually a pretty extreme introvert, but I can't stand this excuse, actually. Because uh, first of all, being an introvert doesn't mean we get a free pass not to spend time with people. Being an introvert means people time drains us. Our tank is filled by alone time and emptied by people time. That's me. 
right? But being an introvert doesn't mean we get to disregard what the Bible says about pouring ourselves out for other people. That's just called selfishness. Yes, we'll be tired. Yes, we'll need to intentionally carve out alone time to recharge after we have practiced hospitality. But doesn't the Bible kind of promise us that, that this life is going to be hard and exhausting before we enter our eternal rest? In the end, though, I'm convinced that under maybe all these sources of resistance is just a plain old, number five, lack of love. Lack of love. For some of us, we're honestly just happy to stay bubbled with other Christians because our neighbor's going to hell without ever watching a real Christian family pray before a meal. That idea just doesn't bother us that much. Sure, maybe they'll never see Christ in such a way that they can make an informed decision of whether to accept or reject him. At least I know Christ, so I'm good. I'm not trying to be crass. Sounds horrible. It is horrible, but I I think it's more common than we'd like to admit. Yeah, it's sad that there are kids whose parents' rights have been terminated who don't have homes. Sad that there are people in the church without family to go home to. Not my problem. God forbid that we who have been loved when Christ had every reason to leave us alone, God forbid that we slide into that lack of love. So our big idea today is this. Let's pursue hospitality. Swedish or not, let's pursue hospitality. I'm glad, actually, that our Swedish people are some of the ones leading the way in this already in our church. Um, don't forget that it's not an accident that you live where you live and work where you work. You're where you are because God has placed you there. And he placed you there because he had a plan for you there. Good works he prepared in advance for you to do. People he strategically placed you there to connect with. Like the missionaries that we send out strategically to various parts of the world, God, the greatest missionary, has placed you exactly where you are. And for those who are pragmatically minded, I'm desperate enough to stoop down and make a pragmatic plea before this sermon ends. Uh, it's this question. Why live here? if you're not going to live here on mission to reach the lost? That's a sincere question. It's crazy for me to say this, but I love this church family enough that I feel like I have to say it. There are a whole bunch of states south of here, still part of the United States of America, where you could go live. Sarah and I have lived there. Our parents still live there. Let me tell you about it. You could sell your house here and get so much more house there. The job market being what it is right now, you could probably get a job just like the one you have now, but do it remotely from some southern city where you'd never have to shovel snow again. And catch this, a whole bunch of your neighbors down there, they'll be Christian. If you're going to bubble up and ignore the Great Commission, take my word for it, ignoring the Great Commission is much more comfortable down there. But what if those of us who are here and who have put down roots here, who are committed to being here, embraced a mindset that God has called us to live here. Because he has. He's placed us here for a purpose. And so for as long as he has us here, and he calls people to different places, I'm not trying to downplay that, but for as long as he has us here, our homes and spaces that are comfortable to us have been designated by him as outposts 
for hospitably welcoming in others who don't yet know him. After all, we were strangers to Jesus, weren't we? He had every reason to stay on his comfortable throne in heaven. He had it all. He could have left us here to slog through it on our own. He had every right to do so. But he left comfort to take on discomfort. He left his place of rest to be exhausted. He left riches to become poor. All because he loved us. He laid his life down and said, if you love me, now you'll do the same. So what's your one step up or to the right? If you're bubbled, Pray about your one step up. Get yourself someplace where you're going to interact regularly with unchurched people. Walk across the street to introduce yourself to a neighbor. Join a league you haven't been in. Take a class you weren't registered for. Get your kids in a group they weren't part of. And be intentional there. If you're closed, pray about your one step right. As Tim Keller recommends, maybe it's just how was your weekend? Well, mowed the lawn, paid some bills, played some golf, went to church. Just leave it there. They pick it up great. If not, you leave it, then eventually over time you mention how your faith connects to your life. How was your weekend? Well, my wife and I weren't seeing eye to eye on this particular issue, but I got a great reminder in my Bible study group at church that I'm supposed to lay down my life for my wife, like Jesus laid down his life for me, and that was, that was helpful for me to reorient this weekend. Maybe it's that. You take that risk. Right? And again, you leave it there. Just see what God does. One step up or one step to the right. Let's be a hospitable church this summer. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with gratitude that you practiced hospitality toward us by welcoming us in when we were strangers and enemies, actually, of yours. You could have left us to wallow, but yet, instead, you pursued us. You tracked us down. You invited us to the table, not just as slaves, which would have been an amazing honor, not just as your servants, but as your friends and even as your family adopted into your family such that we can call you Abba, Father. It's almost too much to bear. And so, Lord, may we not be a church who receives that sort of hospitable love, yet turns our back on the stranger. Help us to imitate your love. Let it flow out of us organically to those who are strangers to us. May we welcome them in as neighbors and eventually as family with God. In Jesus' name, amen.